Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who have we got with us today? Oh, I'm really excited about this one. So we've got Katia Hoyer with us, who's a historian and author specialising in the German Second, Second, my God, not the Third Reich, the Second German Reich, people, Second. <laughs> I love it. your brain just automatically goes there, doesn't it? It does. I'm really sorry, everybody. I, it's Second German Reich, not the Third. I do apologise. Right, so she's here to talk to us about her new book, which was published on January the 14th, called Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918 i'm really excited about this because i operate obviously in the 20th century and i know nothing before that so welcome katya hi thank you for for having me you're not alone with that um sort of focus on the 20th century and the, and the third like that's partially why i wanted to focus on on this topic so in many ways i think you represent you know the focus that many people have on on german history Thank you so much for doing this book because as a first world war historian, it's going on my shelf because I know nothing about this period. It's great. So today we're going to cover um, basically the road to unification, aren't we? Which of course then a unified Germany is where only 30, 40 years before the beginning of the first world war. So it's a really important topic to cover. Yes, I agree. And that's, that's definitely, um, you know, one of the main reasons really why I wanted to focus on this. Um, for some reason, Germany just seems to spring out of nowhere in either 1914 or 1918, depending on, on who you ask. Um, Which is really not the case, is it? Yes, absolutely. And many of the issues that um, are around. So if you look at things like nationalism, militarism, um, you know, the struggle for, for democracy to survive in the, in the 1920s. All of those go back um, a long way into the 19th century. And I think it's very worth, you know, looking at these issues. So this, yeah, this is going to be a great bridge from one period to another, I feel. So let's go right back to 1815. So we've just come off the battlefield at Waterloo, where Prussian troops have fought with Wellington uh, to defeat Napoleon. Can you give us an overview of the political situation in Germany in 1815? Yes, so Germany in itself is more of an idea than a than a political construct at this point. So Germany does not exist at this stage as a, a nation state. Um, instead, there's like this sort of really messy conglomerate of different principalities and and states, um, even sometimes just individual cities, um, that are all ruled over by um, individual sort of political entities, if you will. Um, 
similarly, Prussia and, well, at the same time, Prussia and Austria are sort of emerging as the largest um, of those individual states and the most powerful, with Austria traditionally having been uh, the more powerful of the two. So really to Prussia, and therefore this is also where the significance is for, for later developments, the war against Napoleon is an opportunity to prove its worth almost as a as a European power. It gains a lot of respect, particularly in Britain, um, as a state that sort of came out of out of nowhere, a small-ish uh, political entity in in Central slash Eastern Europe, um, and had sort of by marriage and, and conquest gained more and more territory, but was still very much seen as an emerging force rather than an established one and the fight against Napoleon, particularly that alliance with Britain, um, catapulted Prussia onto the onto the European stage. Um, the other thing to say is that because the Prussians needed help in expelling Napoleon from, from the German lands, uh, the Prussian king rallied all Germans, well, first of all, Prussians, but then also all Germans together um, in a rather desperate plea in 1812. Uh, to try and uh, sort of almost get a militia slash volunteer force together to try and, and get Napoleon um, expelled from the from the German lands, and so in many ways that fight against uh, French overlordship is the first opportunity for German uh, people to realise that they have something in common beyond language, um, and that this sort of idea of fighting against an external enemy might make them realise that more than than anything else could. So that's why I, I decided to start the book there at the same time, because I find both Prussian um, emergence as well as uh, as a sort of idea of a, of a German people um, take hold there. Why and how was nine, um, 19th? Do you see this? I'm <laughs> Leave the 20th century. <laughs> I, you know, the funny thing is, and I, I tagged Katya, Katya in this, um, when, when I did this, I, I wrote up the questions and I kept writing... 1914. <laughs> The individual German states are sort of sat there now uh, wondering, you know, what to do now. Basically, prior to Napoleon invading, um, there had not only just been the 39 states that you see afterwards, but basically hundreds of them. Um, Napoleon had then, for uh, really just administrative reasons and, and other reasons, um, merged them together into 39 states. And now, in 1815, at the Congress of Vienna, um, they're sitting there wondering whether to stick with the 39 states, whether to unify into one, um, or whether to go back to, to over 400 states. Um, and so in that respect, it's the first time really that people sit down, not just Germans, but, but sort of the European um, polity, if you will, sits down and tries to decide what to do about the German question as, as it began to be called. Um, and that's why it's a, it's a watershed moment. Um, at the actual Congress of Vienna, um, the decision is made not to unify um, Germany into one nation state, um, both from the perspective of the German states as well as other European nations that was seen as, as undesirable. 
mainly because German unification was a liberal movement still. Um, and so the, the feeling that um, individual monarchs would have to give up power to, to the people in a constitution wasn't one that, that was sort of welcomed by everyone. Um, but also the idea to, to some, somebody like Britain, for instance, to, to maintain the power balance on the European continent, a, a unified German state, was not seen to be conducive to that. Um, but nonetheless, Prussia is sort of rewarded for their part in the, in the war and for their part in the alliance by uh, territory, um, additional territory that it gains in the Rhineland. And that's really a game changer to, to both Prussia and, and further German um, history. That area in the Rhineland is full of coal, iron ore, zinc, other resources that, that Germany can, or Prussia in this case, can make use of. Um, and with the emergence of the um, industrial, or with the kicking off really of the industrial revolution in Germany at the same time, those are invaluable resources and they allow Prussia to shoot ahead of Austria, which remains largely agricultural still. And that's what, what shifts the balance away from Austria and towards Prussia. So 1815 in many ways is, is a turning point or the beginning of something in, as far as German history is concerned. So Deutsche Bund, what is it and what problems does it cause for Germany? So when the decision was made that Germany would not be a nation state in 1815, there was still a desire to give it some sort of structure, the, the states together. And that structure was provided by the, by the Deutsche Bund, by the German um, Confederation. So the idea was that there'd be like an overarching framework over um, all of the German states and that's what that did. So the uh, parliament of that confederation sat in Frankfurt um, and was very much dominated by, by liberals. Uh, the two important things that this confederation did or could do was a foreign policy. So if Germany was to be attacked again, um, then this would allow the German states collectively to respond to that um, and summon forces that um, would come from all of the different German lands. Um, and in theory, that parliament could also put laws in place that would apply to all the German states. In practice, that's very rarely done because it was difficult enough to get everyone to stay in it. And if they'd gone kind of, you know, so far <laughs> out to decide individual laws and things, then... Um, I think you would have struggled to keep, you know, areas like Bavaria, for example, in it. Um, and the third issue with it is that it didn't really solve the growing competition between Austria and Prussia um, in that they're both in the Bund, both claim sort of overlordship of it, but the chair of the Bund is permanently given to, to Austria. And Prussia feels sort of more and more miffed with that because they think, you know, we're the emerging power, we are the ones that... Um, have a stronger military and, and are beginning to industrialize quicker. So they, they, at the very least, they would have liked to see the chair move from, from one to the other and, and sort of, you know, have a, have a rotation system or something. But because the chair was permanently given to Austria, Prussia became more and more unhappy in the Bund. And that was certainly not going to be a, a long lasting solution to the, to the German question. This next question really interests me because I love identity, especially identity in this time, because Europe is just such a mess. Mm. So what sort of things unite, uni again, I can't even say the word, unified Germany? Um, the main unifying factor is usually determined as, as language. Um, so you often see this phrase, as far as the German tongue is heard. Um, that throws up all sorts of problems. If you define Germans by people that speak German, 
you end up with quite a lot of territory in Europe at the time. So you would have areas like, you know, Switzerland and um, parts of Poland, of course, and I'm sure we'll touch on that later again. Um, Austria goes far into the um, Netherlands and, and into all sorts of areas where, where there's overlap with existing political territory. Um, another factor that's beginning to emerge really is, is a common culture. And that's also something that divides German and I would, Germans, and I would argue to this day, um, there, there are strong cultural differences to the point where, where people identify with their local culture more than, than with being German. Um, but the Brothers Grimm, for example, in their fairy tales really try and, and make a conscious effort to, to provide some sort of um, common cultural good, if you will. So by writing down German fairy tales, which had previously just been... Um, you know, sort of orally passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, by writing these down, they're providing a common language for those things, phrases from those fairy tales that are being picked up. People sort of teach their children the same um, morals. I picked up a, a story in the book that, or, or a difference between the, the German version, the French version of, of Little Red Riding Hood, for example, just to give you one example of these sort of cultural things. So in the German version, um, the, the Brothers Grimm explicitly added a warning from Little Red Riding Hood's mother um, not to go off the path. That doesn't exist in the French version. So this kind of explicit thing is made a big deal of in the, in the Brothers Grimm version. And then, of course, she does go off the path, meets the big bad wolf and, and bad things happen. Um, and this is deliberately inbuilt because this sort of sense of obedience towards your, your elders and your parents is something that the Brothers Grimm felt ought to be a thing that all German children, you know, grow up with. And those things begin to emerge more and more throughout the 19th century and bind Germans in a, in a stronger way than they had done previously. I have to say, I love that stupid film with Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it? No. Oh, the Brothers Grimm. Oh, it's brilliant. It's just absolute <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it's a good laugh. It's like, don't be watching it as a German historian and expecting like <laughs> not to be enraged, but it's a good laugh for a couple of hours. I didn't quite know what the point of Monica Bellucci was, but she looks great. Um, it's, so it's all about Prussia, isn't it, as the largest state. Prussia faces many problems during this period. What do they do to combat them? Um, so the the Prussians still have a problem in that the territory that they've just acquired in the Rhineland is, is a very um, reluctant uh, joiner, shall we say, to the Prussian Empire. So to the point where people are talking of uh, Beuterpreußen, which means the, the word means something along the lines of uh, the Prussians that got, got bagged or got kind of caught in, in Prussia. They don't want to be there. Um, and the Rhinelanders are certainly the sort of key example of that because they're Catholic and they're culturally very distinct as a, as a region. And they find themselves suddenly within this, um, you know, Prussian uh, empire that, that they never wanted to be part of. Uh, so Prussia combats that to some extent by um, sort of pushing ahead with the, uh, with the um, industrialization process. So this makes everyone fairly wealthy fairly quickly so Prussia modernizes a lot more quickly than other areas which means that the middle classes are slowly beginning to to appreciate this um, growing union that Prussia can provide. Uh, military reforms as well are quite popular uh, given that Prussia is now seen as the as protector so the idea especially for the Rhineland that they could get invaded again by France remains pretty strong so there's this French scare for example in, in 1840 uh, where the French King Louis-Philippe runs into problems in France and decides that perhaps another conflict with Germany would, would bail him out. 
Um, and he starts sort of saber rattling and, and saying, you know, we, we want areas around the River Rhine back. And, and the River Rhine, of course, as a, you know, kind of cultural item really mm. um, is quite a painful thing for the, for the Rhinelanders to consider to lose territory there. And so, you know, Prussia is seen as a, as a protective force all of a sudden as kind of like a, almost like a father figure, I suppose, um, reluctantly still. So there's still very, very strong resistance against being part of it. But from a pragmatic point of view, both economically and, and um, militarily, people are beginning to, to look up to Prussia rather than Austria. Can I ask about the other end of the country? I, as someone who's really just superficially got a grasp of German history before the First World War, Bavaria always seems to me to be very culturally different to the rest of Germany. Yeah, that's right. The uh, river Main, which sort of flows um, um, sort of horizontally across Germany, mm. is often called the, the Weisswurst Equator, meaning the, the sausage, sausage equator. So south of that, you've got uh, people eating white sausages. Um, and north of that, people eat bratwurst and other things. And that's usually used as a sort of symbolic thing to divide the two, north and, and south, really, into two distinct cultural blocks. This is uh, brilliant. Alina will never forget this because uh, I, this is the second time this has happened this week. I have to say the words, Alina loves sausage. <laughs> but she really does love sausages. So she's going to remember that. The sausage <laughs> equator. I mean, who doesn't like a sausage? Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely I'm gonna now what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go down to the south eat some white sausage pop up to the north because well you know I only live a couple of hours from Germany so it's great for me mm. that'd be ideal Alex, I love that I'd never heard that before the sausage equator that's brilliant I just can't I mean I'm, I'm a perfect example of that because I'm from the north and I mm. find these white sausages absolutely horrendous like it's just this <laughs> slobbery goo in the middle that you're sucking out of pig's intestines and- <laughs> oh <laughs> Alina's like mm. <laughs> no because we've got the same we've got um but the, you know our sausages don't divide us unfortunately but yeah. for us well actually our white sausages are not that bad and our kind of breakfast sized sausages are also not that bad so I think you might have to pop over to Poland we might surprise you well, where I grew up was only about half an hour from it. So, um, you know, just outside of, of the other Frankfurt, basically. So I, I used to go over there a, a lot and enjoy the Polish sausages as well. <laughs> I have to ask, Hamburg is very different as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of um, naval culture that's beginning to, certainly later in the, in the sort of 1890s, that's beginning to spread across all of Germany, it just doesn't exist prior to that. The rest of Germany feels very much like a, landlocked nation whilst the mm. north has always had that sort of naval tradition and, and the outlook that um, Hamburg in particular with the Hanseatic League uh, had into the rest of Europe is, is very very different compared to um, the southern states and, and their more sort of continental outlook. That's definitely a bridge that's built by Kaiser Wilhelm and his obsession isn't it? That's absolutely right so there's um, his own obsession, I would say, is is not so much something that spreads across Germany. I would say he's more of a kind of um, indicator of what's happening. So he himself is part of something that is happening, I think, across Germany with that naval uh, fascination developing. So you see something like uh, the the Kilo uh, Week, for example, so the, the naval port of, of Kiel in the in the sea in the north mm. of Germany. Um, is putting on like a sort of yearly spectacle of, of just, you know, naval uh, culture and, and, and parades and, and, you know, ship contests and other different things. It's still going on now. Once a I year. just did George V's diaries for when he went over to uh, for the opening of the canal. 
and yeah. all the different functions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that gives all German a sense of pride, uh, pride as well, in, in the sense that it's something new that they can all build up together um, and, and sort of indulge in together. And it, it joins nicely with the fascination for the you know, new technologies and, and new um, things in industry as well that everyone or a lot of people certainly buy into with their progress optimism. We've jumped way too far forward, though, haven't we? In our timeline. It started with the sausages. Well, we can always go back to the sausages. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we need to ask, don't we, how did the French Revolution, because we were talking about the border between France and Germany and the tension, how did the French Revolution affect Germany and its citizens? Oh, it had a huge cultural impact, um, certainly. So the uh, sort of more liberal ideas that ensued from it um, had a, a massive effect on the on the German middle classes, who partially, some of them bought into it and became fairly radical uh, sort of Republicans almost themselves. Not all of them wanted an outright um, German Republic without a monarch at the top, but a lot of them certainly believed that there ought to be a, a legal framework, the rule of law that ties both the monarchs uh, the monarch and the uh, and the people themselves to it, um, and the other end of the spectrum are um, the more conservative end of the middle classes, and of course the aristocracy, who are completely frightened by the spectre of something similar happening in Germany. And when it's beginning to look like the Germans are themselves um, in in such a sort of desperate state in the 1840s that there might be a revolution in Germany, and indeed there is one in, in 1848 and 49. Uh, the elites respond in a fairly drastic manner by by basically crushing those uprisings and and um, driving many of the of the German intellectuals actually out of Germany and into exile. So the the cultural the cultural legacy of the politically uh, speaking the cultural legacy of the of the French Revolution has has a huge impact on on Germany. So industrialization comes in next, and that brings about socio economic change. How does that affect Germany in the 1840s? Um, so it affects it both positively and negatively. Of course, there's the there's the side that brings up a lot of money for people that had previously not enjoyed privilege because obviously they haven't got titles, say, for example. So if you're now a merchant or uh, somebody who, who um, you know, an industrialist, say, all of a sudden that industrialization gives you a huge amount of, of power. Um, due to the money that you get and the influence that comes with it, so that's that's one side of the of the coin. The other side is, of course, um, a, a growth in population and with it a, a huge amount of um, overpopulation going on in the cities because of urbanisation, which in turn leads to pretty uh, horrendous living conditions in in places like Hamburg and and Berlin. Uh, quite famously, for example, there's the Silesian uprising of the of the weavers um, in the 1840s which um, is important in its own right, but it also inspires a lot of people like Karl Marx, for example, to look at the plight of the working classes in particular um, and inspires um, socialist movements in, in Germany. So there's, there's both of these things. It brings the middle classes up into a position where they have more power, but for the working classes, it does mean pretty terrible working conditions. This is the point, isn't it? The towering figure in Germany in this period that we're talking about is Otto von Bismarck. So what can you tell us about his early life? 
Um, so he he comes from a Junker background. So Junkers are or, or Junkers uh, the Junkers are based in in Prussia, mainly in, in sort of East Prussia, but sort of now Northern Poland is is their heartlands. Um, and Bismarck comes from from that Prussian aristocracy, landed Prussian aristocracy. So they used to be incredibly powerful as a as a group, um, but are slowly beginning to feel the pressure from from the rising middle classes and from industrialization because their wealth is largely based on land ownership and um, they end, end up basically now that industrialization is pushing forward losing money and, and status um, and Bismarck's family is, is no exception to that so he very much feels the, the pressure on that um, in his early life because he's always been a, a bit of a maverick I would say in his character very very confident even as a child as teachers are complaining about his uh, sort of somewhat unruly nature. He's very clever, um, even at school, uh, and does particularly well in in German. So, in terms of his his use of words and and the very distinct vocabulary that he uses, very colourful, very sort of flowery language. Uh, his teachers are impressed with him, but also this kind of maverick side of him comes to the fore. So, as he sees his family slowly and and his sort of social class slowly being threatened by the rise of the middle classes, that's got an impact on him. And he turns into an, an ultra conservative sort of maverick politician when he first enters the, the scene. So he's not really interested in politics, is he, in his early life? But then in 1847, he takes up a seat in the Prussian parliament and this becomes life changing, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's quite a, that's one of those moments in history where you, where you more, you know, you have to sort of sit there and think, what if? you know, what if this hadn't happened? Because the, it was sheer coincidence that Bismarck ended up in, in Parliament. He wasn't keen on going there necessarily, but um, a, an existing MP got ill. Um, and because people knew that he was reasonably intelligent and well-educated and, and um, also very well-spoken, uh, they offered him to step in uh, for the MP who had fallen ill. And it's at that point that Bismarck realises he really, really enjoys the political intrigue and the, the scheming and the playing people out against each other and, and all of the other things that come with uh, parliamentary politics. And there, there are plenty of sources where, you know, you can sort of read how he came back home to his wife and, and would, you know, sort of exuberantly talk about how much he enjoyed his day again today, you know, kind of forming factions and, and alliances whilst outmaneuvering other people. And, and that really brings about um, a talent and also a desire in him to, to stay in that field. Can I ask as well, before we move on to us a little bit later in the timeline, the period of the late 1840s is hugely traumatic on the continent, isn't it, in terms of social upheaval? Yeah, absolutely. So all of these things that I talked about earlier uh, in terms of working conditions and, and also the, the liberal hangover from the French Revolution um, sort of collide in the 1840s um, with the middle classes wanting more democracy and, and wanting that, that Frankfurt Parliament to become the centre point of, of the German unification movement and the working classes being hugely unhappy in, in the exploitative situation that they've been pushed into. And those two come together and, and frighten the elites because effectively you've now got a large angry uh, class of people at the bottom led by people with, with new and dangerous ideas of, of republicanism and unification. Um, and so you get a pretty strong response in Germany from the uh, from the government. So initially, um, Friedrich Wilhelm, the, the Prussian king, looks like as if he was going to give in to that movement. And he actually 
uh, bizarrely um, dons the, the German colors, the tricolor, which uh, we still use now as the German colors, the black, red and gold, um, which stood for unification and for liberalism at the time. He puts those colors on, gets on his horse and rides uh, through Berlin on the back of his horse next to the protesters and, and sort of pretends for the time being that he's on their side to try and um, sort of calm their, their anger down. And then literally days later, um, he, he completely uh, goes back on that and, and suppresses the uprising and, and uses kind of brutal force to, to do so. So that's, a, that's something that the people never really forgive him over and forget. And when he eventually um, sort of becomes quite ill, and I'm sure we'll get there later as well, um, it's something that people look forward to, a change in government, because they, they just do not trust this, this king anymore, who at first at first seemed sort of weak and, and willing to give in, and then turned around and, and crushed those hopes that, that people had in those revolutions. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. And then the Crimean War comes in, doesn't it? And that changes for Germany again. Uh, yes, it does, particularly for uh, Prussia, because Prussia doesn't really know what to do in that in that war. Um, there's quite a lot of pressure from um, the Western Alliance for, for Prussia to join it. Um, and many people in Germany think that that would be a good idea. Sorry, in Prussia think that that would be a good idea um, as well to prove once again to Britain in particular that Prussia was now a major player in Europe and ought to be consulted over foreign policy. The problem is that at this point it becomes obvious that Prussian and um, Austrian interests in the Balkans aren't exactly the same and aren't in line. And Prussia has got to drive a very, very careful course at this point. Um, So Austria had now, of course, become quite hostile towards uh, Russia and hence why, you know, they're keen for Prussia to join on their side. Prussia, on the other hand, is quite keen to make sure that this um, sort of doubling up of interest in Poland, um, they they don't want to offend Russia too much because land disputes are still going on in Poland over who gets what. And there might be um, 
you know, problems with that because the West is keen to set up an, an independent Polish state again. And if that happens, Russia is either going to lose some land um, or certainly going to have to live with a, with a Polish buffer state next to it. So they're finding themselves in a situation where they have to stay neutral if they want to protect their interests. And that's what they, they end up doing. But it flags up the increasing divergence of Russian and Austrian interests. Let's talk about the royal family, because this is going to be hugely significant going forward. Um, you have Friedrich William IV, who suffers a stroke, and his brother Wilhelm takes over as regent. How does he cope? Yeah, so the two of them are quite, the pair of them are an interesting combination. So they're, they're brothers, and uh, Friedrich Wilhelm had, had been called the, the flounder or the butt in German, um, you know, due to his sort of slightly ungainly figure he had a very very short neck was quite podgy and was seen as a very unmanly and almost feminine figure um, by people and and he got ridiculed for that and by contrast um wilhelm who will later become the the emperor the kaiser of, of germany the first one is a very soldierly and very sort of austere figure um, so they're virtually complete opposites as as the as brothers and um, so when Friedrich Wilhelm gets um, ill and, and has a stroke and, and becomes incapacitated. Uh, people are looking somewhat um, apprehensively towards the, the reign of, of his brother because obviously he's now taking over as regent um, but will take over completely once uh, Friedrich Wilhelm died. So what, what became obvious is that something will definitely change and people were talking of a, of a new era of uh, Hohenzollern rule even at the time. Um, hoping that that Willem would do things differently compared to his brother, who'd been very, very indecisive. Um, and also, because of his indecision, would often overreact to, to incidents that he, at first, doesn't seem to react to at all. So that was something that people were hoping would change. Move fast forward a little bit to 1868, and there is still no unification. First of all, what does Bismarck do? And second of all, how does Germany finally end up unified? Well, Bismarck himself at this point doesn't really believe that unification is going to happen anytime soon. Um, he actually still sits there in 1868 and says um, in private, though, but he does say that he doesn't think it's going to happen in the 19th century. Um, so there's no way that he anticipates his own uh, movements of just a few, you know, just a couple of years later. Um, however, he does... Um, have it in mind eventually to unify, not because he's a German nationalist, quite on the contrary, he's very much a Prussian um, and wants Prussia to, to succeed. Um, but he does see the rest of Germany as a potentially kind of like really good extension of Prussian power. And so he thinks it would benefit his own state if he could unify Germany somehow. So the first step was to bridge that gap between the two Prussias that we were talking about earlier. So between the Rhineland and the sort of Prussian heartland, if you will, in the, in the east. Um, and Bismarck does that quite cleverly by and ruthlessly by provoking a war with um, Denmark over the territories of Schleswig and Holstein. The whole question around these two territories is hugely complicated because you've got sort of Germans and, and Danish um, people intermixed in both of these areas. But Holstein is the more German of the two, if you will. But they both sit in the middle between the two um, Prussian territories. And the idea was that if um, that territory could be gained then the remaining smaller states in between the two territories would also fall into line and Prussia could basically set up a huge northern power block. Um, and that's what happens. The problem is that Austria has also got a stake um, in 
that area um, and initially whilst they fight um, Denmark together over those territories they quickly fall out um, over what to do there. Um, Bismarck knew that full well um, and, and knew that provoking a war with Austria would, would help Prussia even further uh, gaining sort of dominance within Germany. Um, and so that's what happens and the sort of brothers war as it's called between the, the two German states ensues between Prussia and um, Austria is a relatively short war um, that is won by Prussia because, like I said earlier, Prussia has just got all the advantages now in terms of industry um, and war material. So they win that pretty quickly and establish dominance. That then means that Prussia can set up this huge northern power block called the North German Confederation. Um, and that's pretty much the predecessor for the for the German state. The constitution that is set up for it, the parliament that, that's set up for it. Uh, effectively just uh, get joined by the southern states later. Um, and then the last step is to bring the southern states um, on side. So Alex, you were saying earlier about, you know, Bavaria's sort of distinct culture and when we were yeah. talking about the sausage um, equator. <laughs> and Bismarck is keenly aware of the fact that you're not going to get the Bavarians to, you know, just join in under some sort of Pr- Pr- Prussian, you know, overlordship. Well, this um, is the thing, isn't it? Even when unified, they have their own king. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and they're certainly the most difficult to convince, even with a, a fair degree of, of federalization, to actually stay in that union. Uh, so to get them in in the first place, Bismarck needed a little bit of a, um, you know, some sort of lever to, to get them to join. And, and it needed to be voluntary rather than forced. Um, so he knows if he just starts another war and, and kind of tries to make them by force to, to join the German nation, it would fall apart uh, later. So it needed to be a voluntary thing. Um, so he thinks back to things like the French scale of 1840 and, of course, the war against Napoleon, um, at which point Germans had shown a remarkable degree of, of unity. Even the southern Germans had, had joined in uh, enthusiastically, um, it, you know, so long as it's against the French, that usually works. Um, and so Bismarck thinks to himself, well, good, um, why not have a war with France again? Because then, you know, we're, we're going to get everyone else on side. But it was really, really important that this war would be started by France and not by Prussia. Because A, if Prussia starts it, um, the other European powers are going to have a thing or two to say about that, um, specifically Britain and, and Russia. Um, but also if the southern German states are to sacrifice men and material and money, on this war, it needs to be for a defensive purpose for, so they need the moral high ground, if you will. Um, and so Bismarck used a, a crisis in the in Spain, relatively cleverly, uh, not relatively, very cleverly. Uh, so the, the Spanish throne becomes vacant um, due to various different reasons. And one of the candidates to fill up that slot is a Hohenzollern prince. Um, Willem has absolutely no, as, as a sort of head of the Hohenzollern family, has got absolutely no ambitions on the, on the Spanish throne. So without Bismarck's intervention, nothing would have come of that. Um, the, the throne would have just been filled again um, and, you know, things would have moved on. Um, but uh, Bismarck realizes that he can use that really to provoke the French um, because the, the sort of specter of being surrounded by Hohenzollerns, you know, if, if Spain becomes a Hohenzollern nation itself, you have literally Spain and, and then, you know, the German lands kind of right next to France. So that would be a, a bit of a horrendous uh, thought to, to Napoleon III. Um, and so Bismarck convinces um, Wilhelm to sort of tacitly approve um, the, the candidacy of, of the Hohenzollern prince. Um, 
when that happens, there's huge outrage in France and Bismarck knows he's on the right tracks here. So he just pushes the issue a little bit further um, until the French see the need to send an ambassador to Prussia, Benedetti, um, to try and sort the issue out without war because it's looking like war even then. Um, Benedetti arrives at the court um, and talks to um, Wilhelm. And Wilhelm, like I said, isn't all that fussed about it. So he just says, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll just withdraw the candidacy. Don't worry about it. Um, and sends him away again and says, you know, go home, tell Napoleon we don't want the Spanish throne, it's fine. And Benedetti goes back home and Bismarck gets sent um, the minutes of that meeting. And because Bismarck's very good with words, um, and at that point the minister president of Prussia, so like the chancellor basically, he gets given that um, th those minutes to try and basically polish them and make sure that there isn't anything offensive in there that might cause war. <laughs> Of course, Bismarck sits there and thinks, okay, um, I'll do that. I'll change the wording and make sure that um, it's exactly what I want it to be. And he sharpens the wording to an extent that makes it look like Benedetti had literally just been dismissed by the, by the Kaiser, as if he walked in and, and asked for peace and the Kaiser just rudely sent him away and said, no, I'm not talking to you. And he sends that not only back to the French king, Napoleon um, III, but he also sends it to the press. Um, so that basically if diplomats haven't got a chance to sort it out behind closed doors, it goes out to the French public straight away. And he does it on Bastille Day, which of course, you know, oh, no. <laughs> aggravate the French to a point where there's no going back. And Bismarck knows that for well. He used to be the, the ambassador to France. So he spent quite a fair bit of time in, in Paris, knows Napoleon III well, and knows the French people very well. So he knows full on what he's, you know, full well what he's doing. Um, and you know what my nan would have said about him she would have just said oh he was a bugger <laughs> yeah I think that sums him up <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's a rat bag isn't he about it. <laughs> but a brilliant rat bag yeah certainly very very clever um, yeah. yeah and that worked it did exactly what Bismarck wanted it to, to do sort of it, it got out on Bastille Day it slapped in the face to the French public to Napoleon um, Napoleon had already been under huge pressure in, in France because once again republicanism is on the rise and, and Napoleon is very unpopular at this stage he has no choice um, he's got to attack basically and, and retaliate for that um, indignity that, that he not only he perceived it to be but the French people and, and there it is the war that, that Bismarck needed German states rally all together um, in a again relatively short war from September to, to about December when the fighting begins to to peter out um, and, and the uh, treaty is made. And at that point, Bismarck uses the sort of glamour and glory that came from that war to, to get everyone together. And, and so It's a massive triumph, isn't it? I mean, the, German, the Prussian such German army marches into Paris. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's no coincidence that Bismarck then chooses the, the Palace of Versailles of all places. Um, so the very heart of the, of the French nation of, of certainly the French um, you know royal family to, to form a Germ the German nation there so it seems a bizarre thing to go onto foreign soil um, into the heart of another nation to form your own um, but he does he knows that this entire German nation for that point in time is certainly based on on war and victory alone and, and not much else um, and so hence he's got to do that. At the moment he goes back into Germany anywhere, um, you know, it would lift that one particular German location out of out of the um, sort of group of 39. You can't do that. And also it would take the, 
sort of glory of that waterway and, and it wouldn't work in that in that sense. You can see how fragile this still was by the fact that uh, Louis or Ludwig, the, the Bavarian king, um, is still reluctant to join even at this point. Um, mm. He's sort of half in, half out and isn't entirely sure what to do. And once again, Bismarck thinks, I'm not going to risk it. I need to push him into this. So Bismarck writes a letter to Wilhelm, pretends the letter is from Ludwig, from the, from the Bavarian king, <laughs> inviting uh, Wilhelm to take the, the German throne. He then goes to Ludwig and tells him that he's done that and bribes him. And that, that's as simple as that. He gives him basically money. Um, he's just absolutely, he is brilliant, isn't he? As a he's a brilliant man. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be a bit cautious saying these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in terms of like, oh, wow, I love him. He's awesome. But as a, yeah. as a diplomat, he was brilliant. Yeah, certainly had a brilliant diplomatical mind and also just a sense of, you know, what was and wasn't acceptable and what people would find outrageous and what triggers people into, into action. Despite the, um, just to finish off, despite the sort of reticence of Bavaria to come and everything, when unification happens, it's overwhelmingly um, Prussia is the basis for the German nation, isn't it, in terms of constitution and law and the way of doing things and military it's like scaled up to cover everybody yeah absolutely in any way that you want to look at it so legally um it literally is the southern states joining the north german confederation and then they just rename it into the um into the sort of german confederation if you will or the german reich it's interesting though that it's actually the the first reichstag once it's elected um, in the in the first pan-German elections, that decides they wanted to be called a Reich rather than a confederation, because of the focus on unity. So if you if you translated it into English, I suppose the closest thing would be something like realm. Yeah. Um, but they wanted it in in one piece rather than the the nature of a confederation being you know different parts that that form one kind of greater whole. So it's interesting that the Reichstag still dominated at this point by liberals so they the national liberal party win the win the day in the first elections um insists on changing the wording to that it's not the elites that do it um but it's the it's the right side that decides to to change it but yes the, the civil service the prussian civil service is very much staffing the the german civil service now so you you have a pretty uh, smooth transition there from prussian power into german power the Prussian king is always in a personal union, the same person effectively as the German Kaiser. Um, and there's no way around that. That comes in again, interestingly, in 1918, when Willem is forced to abdicate and the abdication is already declared um, by Max von Baden. Um, Willem gets told that he's effectively abdicated now. And his first response to that is, oh, but I get, I get to keep the Prussian kingship though don't yeah <laughs> he never um, was really quite did did he have a grasp on reality after night no certainly not on the on sort of yeah one minute he wanted background. to be hitler's best friend then he hated hitler uh, he was always going to come back um yeah he just bless him he just yeah and he just didn't understand that that was a it was just inbuilt in the constitution you could not be the prussian king without also being the german kaiser and vice versa yeah um, but that tells you where where power lay there was no attempt to try and sort of pass the crown around to say Bavaria or Baden or elsewhere it was always going to lie in Berlin which has also made the capital um, and had previously of course been the sort of center of, of Prussia as well so in many ways um, it is an extension of Prussian power in the way that Bismarck had had envisioned it it's interesting though that Kaiser Wilhelm doesn't himself doesn't see it that way that's Wilhelm the first yeah and um, 
he actually bursts into tears when when it's time to to take on the the mantle of the German Kaiser. Um, so the night before uh, the proclamation of the of the German Reich on the 18th of January 1871, he actually sits there crying um, and says to Bismarck, "This is all your fault. We've lost Prussia now. You know what is this German thing? I don't want it." Um, and you made it happen. So this is this is also why Bismarck ends up dominating politics for the first 20 years is because Wilhelm doesn't want to be German Kaiser. He completely withdraws himself into Prussia um, and basically stays there, goes hunting and enjoys himself, but isn't involved much in the in the day to day running of the of this new country. He didn't ever want to be the head of. I have to ask you. So that's. Kaiser Wilhelm II's grandfather, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. He, unfortunately, for, I think, for Germany, I want to hear your take on it because my limited understanding is that he lived for too long. Unfortunately, Wilhelm's father dies of throat cancer. How different do you think European history would have been had Fritz not died in 1888 and left the throne to a very young, impressionable and slightly insane Wilhelm II? <laughs> um it certainly is one of the great ifs. Um, it's, it's something that you know has been pondered by historians for ages, and it is an intriguing thought to think what if. I think looking at the structure of the of the rest of German society and at, at who was actually pulling the strings, it would have been interesting to see to what extent Frederick and and also his very um, dominant and clever wife Vicky. <laughs> again slightly insane um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's queen victoria's eldest daughter yeah must be in the family i suppose yeah um but yeah so how the two of them how they would have managed to impress their own uh vision for germany onto the rest i mean you know you do at this point have pretty powerful uh lobbyism going on there's, uh-huh. there's emerging things like the german colonial league and the agricultural league and those sort of very powerful um, blocks that form uh, with millions of members. But There's then also... Fritz was liberal, wasn't he? In theory. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and both of them had this idea, Vicky certainly did, um, because her, her mother um, you know, had given her some, some vision as to how you can run a country effectively that is still relatively conservative with the, with the sort of fairly liberal uh, side to it. Um, and Vicky almost believed that despite the fact that the constellation is, of course, the other way around, um, and she would have sort of been the consort rather than queen herself, but she certainly believed that she would have um, co-run the country with, with Frederick, which is also something that um, the Prussian nobility is, is very, very hostile over, so she's not a popular person at court. No, God love her, she's irritated everybody, hasn't she? <laughs> Uh, and so from that angle, I don't know to, to what extent they would have had room to to manoeuvre because even Willem himself at times, you know, once he comes into power, Willem II struggles getting his own will across, um, despite the fact that it often coincides with, with what the rest of the sort of power stakeholders in Germany want. But nonetheless, there's a lot of other powers at stake as well, at, at play as well. Um, so I haven't got a clear answer, I'm afraid, on on that one. The true historian's answer. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Is what we. You can't be a historian if you can provide a straight answer to something. Well, I think the one thing that would have been different is foreign policy because Willem just is so blunderous with his um, clumsy attempts to uh, sort of both keep Britain at arm's length but also embrace it at the same time. Um, and I don't think that that same obsession was there with um, Frederick. He was also quite 
obviously close to England due to his marriage and due to his political outlook. But I think I th- he kind of exacerbates for me Germany's problems as a young nation, as a young emperor, in that he's very sort of nervous and he doesn't quite know where he fits in and he wants to do great things and big things, but he's not sure how and there's not precedent for him to work off of. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and the other problem with Willem II certainly is that he's absolutely obsessed with the idea that he wants to be the king of all Germans. He wants to be loved and he wants to be appreciated. He obsessively read through newspaper articles every morning to see if there's any sort of mention of him and, and what people said about him. And that really mattered to him. So there's, there's this almost childlike um, desire yeah. to be appreciated in him as well. He's also slightly Trump-like isn't he in in the sense that he used to go off on one and his own sort of administration would try and distance themselves from some silly things that he said um he just yeah he's such an interesting character we should do a whole podcast about him yeah I allude to that in the book to some extent as well as the way that um his chancellors sort of constantly run around frantically trying to um you know sort of cross out things in in the speeches before they went to the press you know the transcripts of them um or they try you know the moment that the press got hold of something that Willem had said and, and were about to publish it they'd already drafted the you know statements to, to say what it must be terrifying it's like Trump isn't it like he would just go no I'll just wing it I don't need a script and you yeah absolutely and, and his father very much in in contrast to that had um you know, being completely different, where Willem spoke in public, um, he would, Willem the, the first, that is, where he spoke in public, it was very much um, pre-scripted and formal occasions as well, rather than spontaneous. And Willem just goes out all the time, speaks to sailors and to soldiers and to, um, you know, public gatherings and, and elsewhere, and, and would just, like, throw his script in the bin and, and just wing it on the day. I like George the Fist policy, which is back away slowly and don't agree to anything with him. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... Not that it works, but he tries. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alina, we've gone waffling off on a tangent. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. That was really enlightening. I had absolutely no idea about Germany's history pre-19... 18. Let's go with 1980. <laughs> She's thinking, how far back could I stretch it? Yeah. <laughs> Without sounding like a complete moron. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm glad that's uh, sort of tempted you into the 19th century a little bit. You, you should come into it and have a look. It's quite, you know, it's quite an experience. It's quite, it's not a bad place to go. Yeah. You just have to drag her kicking and screaming, but we'll get there. <laughs> all right alex has already taken me into the first world war i might as well go those extra steps further so yeah we're getting there don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh, elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. 
We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.